Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, New International Version. Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming, I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. So when you see, standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, as spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24, verses 4 through 6, and verses 15 and 16, New International Version. Hi, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. I'm here today with R.D. Fierro, author, founder of Crystal Sea Books, and part-time climatologist. He checks the weather report and sets the thermostat in the office. And as you'll hear from today's life lesson, sometimes he makes some slightly odd choices about the thermostat, that is. He doesn't have anything to do with setting the weather outside. Anyway, today on Anchored by Truth, we are continuing our examination of biblical prophecy that we're centering around the study of the book of Daniel. Now, on our first two episodes in this series, we took a general look at biblical prophets and prophecy. But today, you say you want to get into the book of Daniel more specifically, right? Right. In our last couple of episodes, we were working on a broad overview of the characteristics of biblical prophets and prophecy. But today, I want to take a more detailed examination of one of the most remarkable of the Old Testament prophets, a man called Daniel. In part, I want to take this detailed look at the book of Daniel, because the book of Daniel contains possibly the most remarkable prophecy in the entire Bible, his so-called prophecy of the 70 weeks. That prophecy is so remarkable that we're going to devote most of an entire episode of Anchored by Truth to it, although we're not going to do that today. Today, I just want to set the stage for a proper discussion of the prophecies of Daniel. 
But in order to do that, in order to understand Daniel's prophecies, first we have to know something about Daniel himself and Daniel's life and times. Hmm, so a bit of a tease, I see. Well, before we get into the serious stuff, let's listen to the second of Crystal C's Life Lessons with a Laugh about the story of Daniel and his friends. In our first life lesson, we found out that Daniel thought that a clean conscience was more important than a clean plate. Today, we're going to see that Daniel's friends were just as faithful to the Lord as Daniel was. Hi, folks. R.D. Fierro from Crystal Sea Books here today with that phenom who fans the flames of French fry followers and fondue aficionados everywhere. Uh... I think you mean aficionados. Whew, man, why is it so hot in here? I can hardly think. It must be over 100 degrees. Whew. Anyway, the name is... Sheesh. Oh, Jerry. Be right. What's going on with the AC? 106, actually, she shot Jerry. And there's nothing wrong with the air conditioning system. RD asked me to turn on the heat. What? Why would you do that? It's probably 98 degrees outside. And you're trying to make it hotter? Well, sheesh, uh, Jerry. I wanted to add a realistic atmosphere to our next lesson on Daniel and his friends. Jambalaya, meat shell, and asparagus. By the way, how do you spell Shisha Jerry? That's a very odd name. Jambalaya, meat shell, and asparagus? No, 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 no. Daniel's friends weren't jambalaya, meat shell, and asparagus. That sounds like an international buffet. Whew. Daniel's friends' Jewish names were Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah. But their Babylonian names were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But what does it being so hot in here have to do with Daniel's friends? Well, as you'll recall, Sheesh, uh, Jerry. Oh, my name's not Sheesh. Look, it's too hot for this. Be right. I'm sorry, but I don't care what Artie said. Cut the heat and crank the AC up to full. Activating air conditioning, Sheesh, uh, Jerry. Well, anyway, to resume our life lesson for today, if you will recall... Early in their service to the king of Babylon, Daniel's friends had to pass through the fire, literally. Be right? In the book of Daniel, chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, relate how the king of Babylon ordered that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cast into a blazing furnace because they would not fall down and worship a golden image of the king. But first, the king had told his warriors to make the furnace seven times hotter than usual. So see, Shisha Jerry? Jerry. Just Jerry. Daniel's friend Sadsack. Shadrach. Medpack. Meshach. And Antipasto. Abednego. Had to endure a fire way worse than in here this morning. So I was just trying to, you know, fire up our imagination. Put some meat on the grill. Make sure we're cooking with gas, so to speak. My imagination wasn't what was on fire. But, R.D., you're forgetting that even though Daniel's friends were cast into the fire, the Bible says the fire didn't affect them. Be right? Can you back me up here? In the same chapter of Daniel, verse 27 says, The king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, 
nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. And speaking of smell, Shisha, Jerry, the heat seems to have... Activating air cleansing system now. New filtration with charcoal needed. Hey, I didn't know it was going to be 112 degrees here this morning. 106, actually, but declining rapidly. Now down to 99. Oh, woohoo! Cold front coming through. Well, at any rate, the important point is that Daniel's friends were as committed to being faithful to the Lord as Daniel was. And the Lord honored that faithfulness by walking in the fire with them. Be right? In verse 25, the Bible says the king looked into the fire and said, Look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Many commentators believe that the fourth person the king saw was a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Well, the Lord did say that he would never leave us or forsake us, no matter how hot it gets around us. Exactly. If the Lord doesn't put out the flames in your life, he will walk through those flames with you. No matter how dire, the Lord's with you in the fire. So let him inspire your desire, holiness to acquire. Wow, that's a mighty fine rhyme. I think we should change your name from... Huh. Wonder who that could be. Hey! There must be a dozen delivery trucks out there. Of course. I had to go to multiple restaurant websites to order French fries, fondue, jambalaya, asparagus, antipasta. Be right. You didn't order all the food items I mentioned, did you? I was just being poetic. I was just being efficient, R.D. And there's a gas grill for the meat charged to your personal card, naturally. Now that's the kind of initiative I can appreciate. Sure, Shisha, Jerry, sure. Well, that's it from, uh, uh, you know, me, R.D. Oh, and it's still Jerry. Sure, still Jerry, sure. And the whole Crystal Sea Grill crew for today. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com where we're not famous, but our boss is. Okay, well... We may have to rethink letting you be in charge of the thermostat. At any rate, Daniel and his three friends were part of the group of young men from the Jewish nobility that we heard about in the opening scripture, correct? Correct. But to be sure that we understand what's going on in the entire book of Daniel, we have to go back a little bit further. So let's set the stage for a little bit broader look at ancient history, especially the history of ancient Israel. Now, most of our listeners know that after the death of King Solomon, the nation of Israel was split into two different kingdoms. There was the so-called Northern Kingdom, which was called Israel, and then there was the Southern Kingdom, which was called Judah. The Northern Kingdom actually contained ten of the twelve tribes of Israel. Only two tribes, only the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, remained as part of the Southern Kingdom. So the Southern Kingdom was named after the most prominent of those two tribes, Judah. So often you'll hear biblical commentators referring to Israel and Judah, and sometimes that's a little bit confusing. Well, when biblical commentators make that reference, they're talking about the times after King David ruled and King Solomon ruled, and the kingdom, which had previously been unified, was split, and the northern kingdom then came to be called Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah. 
Now, the northern kingdom of Israel never really had a righteous king after the split. Throughout its entire history, it just really had a succession of unrighteous and idolatrous rulers. So as a consequence, over the time that it was in existence, the northern kingdom of Israel kept slipping further and further into idolatry. And finally, the nation of Israel was conquered and more or less dispersed by the nation of Assyria. For all intents and purposes, the northern kingdom disappeared from the pages of history in 722 BC when King Sargon II more or less deported all of the Israelites and resettled them in other parts of his empire. That's why you sometimes hear references to the lost ten tribes of Israel. Exactly. Well, the southern kingdom of Judah, as opposed to the northern kingdom of Israel, sort of alternated between good rulers and bad rulers between good kings and bad kings. When it had a bad king, the nation would worship false gods and idols. When it had a good king for a period of time, there would be a restoration of the worship of the one true God. Well, over time, these good and bad kings alternated, but ultimately the southern kingdom of Judah also had a series of very bad kings, and then it too fell into such serious idolatry that the Lord disciplined the southern kingdom by allowing it to be conquered by the Babylonians. Now, the northern kingdom had been conquered and dispersed by the Assyrians, but in the intervening time, which was a little over 150 years or so, the Babylonians had displaced the Assyrians as the dominant power in the Middle East. And under a general, who was also the crown prince named Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians not only defeated the Assyrians, but also defeated the Egyptians. Well, Judah had been nominally an ally of the Egyptians, so around 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar defeated the Egyptians at the Battle of Carchemish, and after Nebuchadnezzar defeated the Egyptians, he attacked and besieged and ultimately captured Jerusalem. So after he captured Jerusalem at this time, Nebuchadnezzar did not destroy Jerusalem. Instead, what he did was installed a vassal king, more or less a puppet king that would be obedient, they thought at least, to Babylon. And at the same time, he deported some of the nobility and some of the nobles' kids and children. And one of those children was likely Daniel. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly how old Daniel was, but most scholars believe that Daniel was probably between the ages of about 12 and 16 when he was sent to Babylon. And quite unusually for a biblical prophet, Daniel would spend the entire rest of his life, at least 65 to 70 years, outside of his own homeland. He would spend the entire period of his adult life in and around Babylon, in other words, outside Israel. And even though Nebuchadnezzar initially left Jerusalem more or less intact, since the Hebrews kept creating trouble for him, in 587 BC, he more or less destroyed Jerusalem and deported almost all of the remaining people to Babylon and its surrounding region. Only the very poorest people were left in Judah. That began a period of captivity for the Hebrews, which would only end after the Babylonians themselves were conquered by a combined force of the Medes and the Persians under a famous general named Cyrus. And interestingly enough, Cyrus let the Jews return back to their land exactly as had been prophesied by Isaiah in Isaiah 44.28. Precisely. So this background in history of Israel and some of the other major powers in the Middle East kind of sets up the framework for Daniel's remarkable prophetic career. Now, thanks to God's providence, even though Daniel was a Jew and fairly young when he was deported, 
Daniel ultimately became a very senior court official in both the Babylonian court and in the Persian court, which was the empire that succeeded Babylon. And like we said earlier, Daniel lived a good long life. So he not only lived through the balance of the empire of the Babylonians, he lived long enough to see the Babylonians fall to another one of the Mideast's major empires, which was called the Medo-Persian Empire. So Daniel lived long enough to see Babylon as a major empire, watch it govern and exist for about 70 years, and then he also lived long enough to see its fall and the rise of its successor empire, the Medo-Persian Empire. So, unlike most biblical prophets, all of the prophecies that Daniel gave us were made outside of Israel. And because Daniel served as a senior court official in not just one, but two very important Gentile Mideast empires, today you might think of Daniel as being sort of a senior bureaucrat, because Daniel was this senior bureaucrat in Gentile governments, it gave him a unique perspective on the grand sweep of history. And it sort of makes him unique among biblical prophets. And one of the things that makes Daniel unique as a prophet and makes much of his prophecy unique is that Daniel's prophecies were not just focused on the nation of Israel and events or kingdoms that would specifically affect the nation of Israel. A lot of the biblical prophets, of course, their primary attention was devoted to the nation that was their nation, the nation in which they had been born and the nation in which they lived, or it focused on the immediate neighbors that were adjacent to Israel who tended to create problems and trouble for it. But Daniel was far removed geographically from the nation of Israel, and because he was at the centerpiece of a lot of the unfolding world events of the time, he had sort of a grander and a broader view of world history as it was happening during the period of his lifetime. So Daniel's prophecies went considerably beyond just the events that affected the nation of Israel. And because Daniel's prophecies went considerably beyond just the nation of Israel, we have a lot of confirmation from extra-biblical sources about whether or not Daniel's prophecies came true. Well, spoiler alert, Daniel was extraordinarily accurate. His prophecies predicted the unfolding of world events in such a remarkable way that even the critics have to admit that either Daniel was a truly inspired by God prophet or they have to come up with a reason to explain why he could have been so accurate. And because Daniel was such a remarkably accurate prophet, there is a lot of extra-biblical confirmation that demonstrates the accuracy of Daniel's prophecy. So this has made the book of Daniel the subject of a great deal of criticism and attack through the years. And I think that's a really important point that we need to explore a little further. If Daniel hadn't uttered prophecies that were spectacularly accurate, there would be no point in attacking the legitimacy of his book. After all, who would bother to attack a prophet who was demonstrably wrong? But Daniel's prophecy were so accurate and precise that if he was who he claims to be, the recipient of information that could only come from God, then his book helps prove that God did supernaturally guide him in the book that bears his name. So when did Daniel write his book? Well, there are two different theories, a so-called late date and the date that has traditionally been accepted by biblical scholars. The traditional dating for the composition of Daniel is the latter part of the 6th century B.C. Now, the late date theory says that the book of Daniel was written about the middle of the 2nd century B.C., 
and this particular hypothesis was advanced by a biblical critic named Porphyry in the 3rd century AD. And simply put, as we had mentioned earlier, Porphyry thought that Daniel's prophecies were so accurate that they couldn't have been genuine. So Porphyry came up with this hypothesis that the book of Daniel was written in the 2nd century B.C., or in other words, it was written after the time that a lot of Daniel's prophecies had come true. Porphyry's hypothesis was, in effect, that during the time of Jewish oppression under a king named Antiochus Epiphanes, that some Jewish writer at the time, in order to provide some encouragement to his very oppressed people, kind of wrote this pious fraud. And he wrote this pious fraud to provide some encouragement to the beleaguered Jews. Well, to make his pious fraud more inspirational, and to cause the Jews to accept it as something in which they can invest trust, Porphyry said that this writer, not Daniel, but the fraudulent writer attributed the works to Daniel, Porphyry said that this writer had made up all these prophecies by knowing the history and then writing that history as prophetic utterance. So what the writer was doing in Porphyry's hypothesis was to make up these prophecies that had come true in order to give the Jews the encouragement that the prophecies that the writer was making about the coming deliverance of the Jews more believable. So Porphyry's hypothesis was that the writer of Daniel attempted to disguise history as prophecy. To make his fraudulent encouragement more inspirational, the writer pretended that historical events had been given originally as prophecies. That way, the Jews of his day would be more likely to be inspired to continue their struggle against this wicked king because they could rely on Daniel's prophecies for their upcoming deliverance. In essence, yes. And that criticism, the one that was initially inaugurated by Porphyry, has been repeated in various forms throughout church history. You see it resurface pretty much every two or three hundred years or so in the writings of various Bible critics at one time or another. Now again, the criticism, this criticism that the book of Daniel was actually composed in the 2nd century B.C., not in the 6th century B.C., this criticism is absolutely essential to the critics because otherwise the skeptics would be forced to admit that the book of Daniel contains clear and compelling evidence of supernatural origin. So, is there any evidence that Porphyry was wrong and that the book of Daniel was actually composed during the 6th century B.C.? Well, first I just want to point out, I just want everyone to understand that right now we're not actually talking about the content of Daniel's prophecies. We're not talking about the specific prophecies themselves. We're just talking about the date of his book because the date of his book is so pertinent to the prophecies that we're going to talk about in the next episode of Anchored by Truth. But just to make sure that everybody's clear, all we're addressing is the question of the proper dating of the book of Daniel. And in fact, there is abundant evidence that the book of Daniel was written in the 6th century B.C. as opposed to the 2nd century B.C. Such as? Well, let's start with the fact that it's well known and generally accepted that the book of Daniel was written both in Aramaic and in Hebrew. Now, a lot of the Old Testament is written just in Hebrew because there were Hebrew writers writing to Hebrew people. But since Daniel was outside of Israel in and around Babylon during his lifetime, he wrote in both Aramaic and Hebrew. So Daniel knew Hebrew, of course, because he had spent the first several years, 12, maybe up to 16 years of his life in Israel. So Daniel spoke and wrote Hebrew fluently, but Daniel had lived his entire adult life in Babylon. 
So frankly, it would have taken someone who was fluent in both languages, in both Aramaic and Hebrew, to be able to write a book that way. Think about today, how many of us could write a book and say both English and Spanish, or Italian and Russian, etc.? I know a lot of people who have trouble writing in one language. So do I. Well, anyway, just to sort of reinforce that point, Daniel's life story tells us that he would have been comfortable in both of those languages. He'd spent his early years in Judah, so his native language was Hebrew, and then he spent his adult lifetime in in and around Babylon, so he spoke Aramaic, or in archaic terms, that's sometimes referred to as Chaldee. And not only that, the Bible specifically says, again, in chapter 1 of Daniel, that one of the skills that was specifically taught to the Jewish boys that they had intended to use in the Babylonian court, the Bible says that one of the skills that they taught those Jewish boys was the Babylonian language, which was Aramaic. So after being specifically taught Aramaic, and after a lifetime of service to the Babylonians, and then subsequently a little time to the Persians, Daniel was thoroughly familiar with Aramaic. So the compositional languages of the book that we have are consistent with what we know about Daniel's life. Also, the type of Aramaic and Hebrew that Daniel used in his book are not consistent with the Aramaic and Hebrew of the late date that's assigned by Porphyry. How can we be sure? Well, with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we now have an abundance of documents that can be affirmatively dated between the 2nd and 3rd centuries B.C., Well, before we close for today, I'd like to cover one other point that should settle the question of whether the book of Daniel is an authentic record of history and prophecy, at least for committed Christians. In the second scripture that we heard today, we heard Jesus refer to a prophecy given by Daniel as something that would alert his audience to a clear sign of immediate trouble. So the fact that Jesus would use something written about by Daniel as an alert to his audience tells us that Jesus trusted the book of Daniel and treated it as being a genuine, authentic revelation of history and prophecy. So if you're going to place your trust in Jesus as the Son of God, who was incapable of error, then if Jesus refers to Daniel as being an authentic revelation of prophecy and history, if Jesus was willing to place his trust in the book of Daniel, then so should any person that calls themselves a Christian. Because we place trust in Jesus as being incapable of error, So Jesus did not make an error about the book of Daniel, and that tells us that the book of Daniel is, in fact, an authentic record written by who had claimed to be a senior court official, a dispossessed Jew, who lived in the 6th century B.C. That's a great point, and it again points to the unity of Scripture. It's very common for New Testament speakers and writers to refer to either prophecy or observations from the Old Testament. This illustrates that the entire Bible is a single composition given for the purpose of telling a single story. The story of creation, fall, and redemption. Sounds like a perfect time to close with a prayer. How about if today we pray that the Lord would always grant us the wisdom to be wise stewards of whatever resources He has entrusted to our care. Prayer to be a faithful steward. Almighty, everlasting, and eternal Father, you are the rock, the only sure foundation on which we can build and hope to have our work survive. 
You alone can weave the twisted strands of our lives into a whole cloth that is suitable for your purposes. You alone are the sure and steady hand that preserves us from falling into the snares of the enemy and holds us up when we stumble. Lord, your word rightly tells us that the entire world and all it contains belong to you. It is so easy for us to forget this as we rush to and fro in our daily lives. As we go to our jobs, purchase items at the store, visit banks, and struggle with checkbooks and price tags, we easily forget that none of what passes through our hands truly belongs to us. You own it all, and no amount of striving or pulling can change this fact. Help us, Lord, to release what we cannot hold. Incline our hearts to you so that we treasure the blesser far more than the blessings. Our confidence is in him, and it is in his precious name that we pray and give thanks. Amen. We'd like to remind our audience that a lot of our radio episodes are linked together in series of topics, so if they've missed any episodes, or if they just want to hear one again, all of these episodes are available on your favorite podcast app. To find them, just search on Anchored by Truth by Crystal Sea Books. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.